Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, on this uh, Pentecost Sunday, we just pray, Lord, that we would be completely reliant on you and on your spirit to do everything. Lord, uh, as we think about those first uh, disciples and how they were told to wait for the power of the Spirit, and they were told that they were powerless apart from you, apart from you coming in the Holy Spirit into their hearts to give them the power and the strength to do what you've called them to do. We pray, Lord, that we would remember we're in the same position, that we need your Spirit to come and enliven us. We pray that he would do his work this morning of regeneration, We pray he would do his work this morning of conviction, of comfort, of empowerment, of just stirring us up to holy joy in the things that you've done in your son. And Lord, these are things that only you can do. We are fixed on this one thing, to see your power, to see your glory, to see your goodness, knowing that that's what transforms us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we're going to take a two-week break, or we have been taking a two-week break from Galatians to do two things, Ascension Sunday and Pentecost Sunday. And these have been more of a kind of traditional thing in, in older denominational churches where they would mark Ascension. So Ascension, was, Jesus ascended 40 days after the resurrection, and so Ascension Sunday is six weeks. And if you guys are math people and you're weirded out by the numbers, it's close, okay? It's six weeks after, um, after Easter that we celebrate Ascension, and that's what we did last week. You can get the audio from that if you weren't here. And then this week is when we celebrate Pentecost, and that's 50 days after Passover. So we celebrate that at the seventh week after Easter. And so we plan on doing it from now on that we'll just keep doing this every year. And the importance of that is, guys, is that it immerses us in the timeline of Jesus. Because for a lot of us, you know, it's you know, Good Friday. We know what's going on there. Jesus died on the Friday. He was raised on a Sunday, and then the next thing we celebrate is what? Christmas. He's born again. It's like, okay, what happened in between? You know, he spent 40 days here, ascended, and then a week later sent the Holy Spirit into his people, and so we want to celebrate that. Um, We're going to be in Acts 2 here, and Acts 2 takes place at the Jewish Feast of Pentecost in 33 AD, and it was one of the three major pilgrimage feasts. So there was three main feasts where they would all try and come when they could to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship, and it was at Passover, Pentecost, and, um, and at uh, uh, booths. They had this one, it was really cool, this little thing where they remembered when they were in the wilderness and they would all live in these little booths, and, and we'll talk about that too. So the city, guys, on this Pentecost in 33 AD would have been packed. It would have been, the population would have been massive. It had been a week since Jesus was ascended, so you didn't get the timeline. Uh, and Jesus had told them what? He told them to wait in Jerusalem. He said, wait in Jerusalem, and you'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you know what's really cool about this? They did it. You know, so often in the Bible, we're like, they were told to do this, and then they did that. They were told to wait, and they did it. Good job, team. You know, like, this is great, you know? And so you look in verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. And um, this is when things really get real here in this passage. Look at verse 2. A mighty rushing wind came, and they were filled the entire house where they were seated, seated, and 
divided tongues as of fire appeared and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so there's this image here of the Holy Spirit's coming in a physical manifestation of these like tongues of fire. And I have this video that uh, Vanessa's going to play, but um, in the Pantheon in Rome, um, they have every Pentecost Sunday, so they'd be doing it on this Pentecost Sunday, they do this really cool thing where they drop rose petals from the top of the Pantheon as a remembrance of the, the tongues of fire coming down on the disciples. What a cool tradition, right? I think we could get some, some fans here and some rose petals, and it's going to be kind of messy. I'm going to need volunteers, but we can maybe do that next year. But they've been doing this tradition since, for 1,400 years at the Pantheon, where they will drop these, these rose petals as a remembrance. And so, um, so what happened is the, the wind comes into the room, uh, these tongues of fire come on, and then they're able to speak languages that are unknown to themselves, but known to the people hearing. And, and it's amazing. Look at verse 5. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude together. Now, they must have gone outside. They're in a room. Now, they're going outside, probably in the temple area. It says, At the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. And they said, Are these not Galileans speaking? And how is it that we hear them, each of them, in our own native language? And there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people from Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontius and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jew and proselyte and Cretans and Arabians. And it says, and we all heard that in our own tongue the mighty works of God. Isn't that amazing? This is, this is really, if you go through this and you look out on a map, this is basically the entire known world to them. You know, that's why they say the whole world was there. It was every place they knew about there were Jews that had come to this feast. And they're all hearing the mighty works of God in their own languages. And it says, but others mock, saying they are filled with new wine. There's always that guy, right? Like, they're like, oh, this is amazing, this is incredible. And the one goes, ah, oh, they're drunk, you know? And I love what Peter does. He goes, it's only 9 a.m., it couldn't be, you know? Like, what a weird <laughs> response. But look at the reaction of the people. It says they're bewildered, they're amazed, they're astonished, they're perplexed, and they say, what does this mean? And so the question this morning would be, what does this mean? You know, that's the question that Luke puts here. What does this mean? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what does Pentecost mean, and we're going to see that Pentecost shows us the time, Pentecost shows us the presence, Pentecost shows us the power and the king. So time, presence, power, and king. First, Pentecost shows us the time. Look at verse 14 again. Peter stands up with the eleven. He's going to answer this question. What does this mean? He says this. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my word. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall come to pass, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What he's saying in verse 17 is that what they're seeing in Pentecost, this whole tongues thing, is like a highway sign that says instead of like now entering Arizona or whatever, it says now entering, you are now entering the last days. That's what he's saying. This is a sign that the last days have come. People often will ask us, they'll say things like, you know, with all the bad things happening, do you think this is the last days? And I'm like, yep. And they go, well, how, how can you be so sure? It's been the last days for like 1,985 years, okay? It's been for a long time. That's a, that's a road sign on the highway now entering the last days that we drove past 1,985 years ago. So we're deep into the last days, actually, um, according to the Bible. 
And, um, and, and you've got to imagine that you're, you know, it's, it's as if we're driving along on the timeline, we're going, like, man, the return of the Lord's got to be here somewhere, you know? Like, it, it's got to be close up. Um, I have a group we're meeting on Thursday nights, and we're talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. And I was texting with Chad, and, uh, and I was looking for a good timeline of, like, events in the Bible. And there was this really cool one he sent me. And it shows creation and the fall and giving the law and David and all these things, right? And then on the back, it kind of goes on. You got new creation at the end, final judgment, all that. But look at where it says, present day, you are here, right? And he was like, it's amazing. We're like right at the end of this story. And we are. We're deep into the last days. In fact, when Joel talks about Pentecost, he lumps in the day of the Lord as if they were going to occur next to each other. Look at verse 19. He says, This is quoting Joel, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And you think, like, that's interesting because he's got a prophecy about Pentecost, and he's talking about the day of the Lord, which comes later, the judgment of God when he comes. Have you guys ever heard of of an idea called prophetic telescoping? The idea is, is that as Joel was looking forward in his vision and he saw Pentecost, he saw the day of the Lord behind it, and it's almost like, you know, when you're looking at a horizon, you see two mountain ranges, and it looks like they're right, they could be right next to each other, but they're not, right? They're separated by distance, but you don't know how much. You can't look on the side there, right, and know how far. Joel's looking forward. He sees Pentecost, and he sees the day of the Lord here, and he, he talks about both of what he sees, even though they're actually separated by a considerable amount of time. And, um, and for us, guys, it's all the more closer, right? For him, he thought, well, you know, those are good as they're close to each other, you know, from what he could see. For us, who have, have gone 1,985 years into the last days, we're even closer. We're closer to that return of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Pentecost shows us the time. It means that you live in the last days. It means that you are people of the last days. You think that way about yourself? You're people of a particular time. You are people of the last days, well into the last days. How should that change how we live? Just think about that. If you, if you were like knew that certain people were living in the last days, how should they live? You are those people. It shows us the time. Pentecost also shows us the presence. Look at verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter's saying that what they're seeing at Pentecost is God making good on an ancient promise to Joel. And actually, the, the promise goes even further back to the very beginning of our story. But um, it was the return of God's dwelling with his people. It was a presence that we lost in Eden. So if you think back to Eden, Adam and Eve, they basically lived in a garden temple. You know, it was a temple. God was there. He would dwell with them personally. They got, they got to enjoy his very personal relationship with them, his very presence. And then they rebelled against him, right? They wanted to live life their own way. They wanted to figure out life on their own. They didn't want God's interference. And they sinned against him. They rebelled against him. And then what? They were banished, which was a big deal because Psalm 16 says that in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You have never felt fullness of joy. They had. They, they were used to it, right? And they were banished away from the presence of God, but not without some promise too, because as they left, he did two things. He promised a rescuer to come to solve the problem, Genesis 3.15, and then he also clothed them with skins of animals to say, I will cover your sin, and you will not be banished forever. We will be reunited. And then you go through the rest of the Bible, and you see that God does appear to people sporadically, right? He appears to Enoch, and Noah, and Abraham, and Jacob, but it's sporadic. 
And then at Exodus, Moses comes, he rescues the people from, from uh, bondage in Egypt, and then they get a great gift, which is they get the concentrated, constant presence of God in the, in the tabernacle, which was like, kind of like a portable temple they bring along. God was always with them. He was consistently in there. Now, they couldn't go in. Moses had to mediate that presence to the people. He went in, talked to God, came out, talked to the people, right? Which wasn't always the best deal for Moses, right? We see him like burn out and frustrated and kind of being driven nuts by having this role of being mediator, right? You guys remember in Numbers 11 what happened? So God gives them miraculous bread every day from heaven, and then they get tired of it. You know, it's such a pain. You know, it's like, and send us meat, and they're, you know, complaining and stuff like that. And what does Moses say in Numbers 11? Just kill me. It's super dramatic, you know. It's kind of what I would do. I'm ready to die. Take me, Lord, you know. He's like, kill me. Moses, and God goes, you know what? Let's do this instead. Uh, bring 70 of the elders. We'll put the Holy Spirit on, upon them, and then they will minister and help you. So we'll spread this labor out, which was great. And so they did that. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They, the 70 elders prophesied. Um, but then there was a weird thing that happened. There were two other guys that also received the Holy Spirit, and they were prophesying back in, 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 the, in the camp. And Joshua is offended by this, and he, he, he thinks maybe it should be stopped. And in Numbers 11, he says this. Joshua says, um, should we stop them? You know, should we stop them from prophesying? And Moses says this back to him. He says, are you jealous for my sake? That's what Moses' response is. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would send his spirit on all of them. He's like, not only do I want them to have the spirit too, like, let's, let's have the Holy Spirit come on all these people. It'd be a lot less painful for me, you know. God would be in them, transforming them, uh, instructing them, leading them, opening their eyes. It wouldn't be up for me to mediate that. And so he has this, this dream of Moses, right? Not a prophecy, but a desire. Later in Ezekiel 36, though, God makes a promise like that, but even better. If you take a look at Ezekiel 36, 25, it says this. God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then listen to this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's a promise that the very presence of God would not just be in their midst, but in their bodies inside their very bodies. And being in their very bodies, he would transform them from the inside out and that they would follow him in, in a more faithful way because God himself dwells in them. And this would be radically different, guys, than the, the relationship that Old Testament people had with the Holy Spirit. As you look through the Holy Spirit, the, as you look through the Old Testament, you see that the Holy Spirit mainly comes upon key figures. It's not, you know, random Israelite. It's people like David. It's, the, it's people like Samson. It's judges and kings and prophets. It's not that every believer has the Holy Spirit upon them. The other thing that's different is that the Holy Spirit almost always is spoken of as being upon people, not in them. One exception would be uh, Bezalel, who was an artist who designed a lot of the internal things of the tabernacle. So the Holy Spirit was in him. But that's rare. Most of the time, the Holy Spirit would come upon people, not be in them. So it was key figures. It was external. And it was temporary. Holy Spirit would come upon people and then leave. And you see that with the judges. You see that especially with who? Saul, right? The Holy Spirit departs from Saul. And um, he's kind of given over to the enemy at that point. And David saw that, and he's freaked out by it. And so in Psalm 51, he prays, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He'd seen it happen to Saul, and he didn't want it to happen to him. So key figures, external and temporary. But what's being promised here in Ezekiel 36 is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, would dwell inside every believer permanently. Huge promise. 
And the people waited for it. And as they waited for it, they finally got their home in Israel. They built the temple so they didn't have to use the tabernacle anymore. They had a, an actual temple. Um, they brought the Ark of the Covenant in there, placed in the Holy of Holies. In 1 Kings 8, you see that there's all this smoke and glory in there. And they, the priests have to evacuate because there's so much smoke and glory in there. They can't handle it. They can't even minister in there, right? And God's present there. It's the meeting place between heaven and earth. It's the place where God made contact with the world. It's the portal between heaven and earth. But of course, as you know, due to their disobedience, 587, um, Israel is uh, destroyed. The temple's destroyed. The ark gets lost, right? Uh, I don't know if you guys realize that, but like in New Testament times, they didn't even have the ark anymore. The ark got lost. I mean, only what? Harrison Ford and some, you know, conspiracy YouTubers know where it is now. But, um, but it was lost, right? And so by the time of the New Testament, the high priest would go in once a year, offer a sacrifice to an empty room. It's kind of illustrative, isn't it? Like, the religion rolled on, but what about the presence of God, right? Where would this promise be fulfilled? And then walks who? Jesus, right? Then Jesus comes. In John 1, it says that in Jesus, we have God himself tabernacling among us. That word dwelt means to tabernacle. He comes and he tabernacles among us. Jesus being the very meeting place between heaven and earth where God would meet with people. John the Baptist declared that Jesus would be the one to fulfill the promised spirit. Remember he said, I baptize with water. I know it's impressive. I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus taught it about himself too in John 7. It's really cool. The other major pilgrimage. So Jesus messed up all of their pilgrimage feasts. You guys realize that, right? So he, he died and was raised again around Passover, right? Pentecost, we're going to see, creates quite a stir there. Well, he also created quite a stir at the Feast of Booths. And so in John 7, they're doing the Feast of Booths, which is this cool thing where I guess you live in a tent or something, a little booth, and you kind of reenact. like these people do Civil War reenactments or whatever. You could do this reenactment of being in the wilderness. And they did this thing where they remembered what God did for them in providing. And one of the things they remember that God did is he provided water. Remember, he provided water supernaturally, and water always being an illustration of God's presence and his blessing and his joy. And so they have this elaborate festival where they, they carry this water around and they pour it and they talk about God gives water. Only God gives us water. God's the provider and all this stuff. Check out what Jesus does at this feast after they thought, oh yeah, God's great. He gives water. Only God can do that. Listen to what he does. On the last day of that feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's bold, right? You wonder why they were mad. Stuff like that, Right? And he says, whoever believes in me, the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit, whom those who believed in him would receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So once again, stirring up one of those pilgrimage uh, feasts. Jesus taught his disciples that he had to go away first. And he says that again in John 16. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's your advantage that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the helper won't come to you. But when I go away, he'll come. And so that's what we see here at Pentecost. We see Jesus dies. He's resurrected. He does 40 days, like kind of a victory lap, right? He does 40 days on earth, showing that he's okay. And then he ascends. We, we talked about that last week, that he ascends bodily, goes up to his throne. And then there's this seven-day period. It's like, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Bam! The Holy Spirit comes down, empowers his people. That's what we're seeing at Pentecost. He's making good on that promise. And now, guys, that God has come to dwell in all of his people. Look at verse 16 again. He says, 
And it shall come to pass in the last days, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall dream, shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Isn't this great? Look at this. You know, this is radical. To you guys, you know, you're, you're Americans, and you're used to democracy, everybody's treated the same and all this stuff. This is amazing, actually, that God himself would come to dwell in, it says, all flesh. It, not, not respecting gender, both sons and daughters. This is unusual, right? Um, and not respecting age, both young and old men. Not respecting class. I mean, even servants would have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. This is a major shift. This is a major kind of democratization of God's presence, that he would be within every single one of God's people. God, the Holy Spirit, guys, dwells in your flesh, your body, your carcass that was hard to get up this morning and get here, the Holy Spirit lives in your physical body now. God himself, guys. Uh, your body is God's house. Um, you have an access to God, and I know it's hard to believe because we really haven't lived into it. None of us have. But you have an access to God's presence that the Old Testament believers just dreamed about. It was what Moses said. He was like, oh, I wish that all God's people had that. You do. Isn't that amazing? You do. You are the promised last day's temple. You are. Regular old you, right? The promised last day's temple, the meeting place between heaven and earth. You are the portable presence of the living God in this dying world. That's what it's about. That's what Pentecost is about. Wherever you are, he is. Pentecost shows us um, the presence, the presence of God within us. Was, Pentecost shows us the time, the presence. Third, Pentecost shows us the power. Coming of the Holy Spirit was not just the coming of the whole, of God's presence in his people, but his power through his people. Because it turns out, if you have God living in you, he makes himself known. Like he's going to, you know, you guys have experienced this. He stirs things up in your life, right? He, he rearranges all the furniture inside. He says, this isn't going to go. Transforms your life. But he also starts working through you because that's what he does. He's not, he doesn't sit quietly with inside his people. And one of the ways he works powerfully is through spiritual gifts. Now, what is a spiritual gift? Um, 1 Corinthians 12 says that a spiritual gift is, this is a cool, cool definition, straight from the Bible, a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Isn't that cool? You guys realize that? Like, you realize if you have the gift of mercy or teaching or hospitality or whatever, that it's a manifestation of the Spirit? It sounds kind of mystical and amazing, doesn't it? It's a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Um, all believers have been given spiritual gifts. Now, I want to talk about a controversial one. And uh, everybody remain calm. And David, make sure the AC's on. Um, but uh, I want to mention one of them because it's here. It's real prominent, which is the New Testament gift of prophecy. Okay? I'm going to talk about the New Testament gift of prophecy. What is it? Grudem's definition is great. Wayne Grudem, he says this. The New Testament gift of prophecy is telling something God has spontaneously brought to mind. So God brings something spontaneously to your mind. You share it with another person. That person, if it is the gift of prophecy, is going to go, no way, how did you know that? Okay, there's going to be a, a, a response there that's clearly supernatural. I don't believe it's a sign gift. I don't believe it was only for apostles. It's listed in the list of ordinary spiritual gifts given to ordinary Christians. You can see that in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And they're all mixed up in there. It's just like administration, like miracles. It's like not like there's an order, like, hey, there's these flashy ones, and then there's these, you know. It's not like that. It's, they're all mixed together. It's an ordinary gift to Christians. Um, and you see that in Acts 2 as well, that it's given to sons and daughters and young and old and all classes of society. 
And I personally don't see anywhere where the Bible says that this gift has ceased. Okay? Now, there are many people that do believe that, many in this room, and I respect you. I respect you way more than you know. Okay? Um, and many other people I highly respect, um, people like, you hear me quote Tim Keller all the time, okay? Respect that guy, cessationist, believes this gift has ceased. Uh, Michael Horton, I probably love him too much. Um, and uh, my mentor, Jim Neuheiser, is going to come preach here. Total cessationist, tried to fix me uh, many times. You know, I've had many treatments to try and fix this. Um, so, and I just want to say to you, if you don't believe that God still gives this gift today, don't worry. I'm not going to allow anything crazy to happen, okay? The Bible has controls on these things. It's not gonna, like we're going to pop up a prophecy mic and things are going to get crazy, okay? It's not going to happen. You guys realize, my parents here, they can, they can say this. I'm an incredibly cautious human, okay? I didn't start walking until I was, what, like 18 months old? And I, I waited until I was absolutely sure I wouldn't fall, okay? So <laughs> I'm not a, like a risky, like, let's just do crazy things, you know, kind of guy, right? I have to be pushed. And I also want to say to you guys that in our church, we encourage you to study issues like this and then worship according to your conscience, okay? We we'll have to worship according to our conscience. And I want to tell you, too, none of you would be kept from significant ministry because you don't agree with me on this one thing, okay? It isn't one of the things I think. It isn't like, hey, you know, who are we going to put over this? Well, do they believe in the gift of prophecy? It's not one of the things I think, okay? Um, you won't be kept from that. You won't be disrespected here. Um, I was uh, in a situation where whenever you disagreed with any minor point of doctrine with the pastor, end times and stuff like that, you were kind of told, like, it's because you aren't looking at the Bible clearly and there's a real problem with you. And it was just kind of like a, ugh. You won't be disrespected for this. Okay, with all that said, I hope you're relaxed. <laughs> One of the major concerns that Christians have with this gift is that it's going to be taken on the same level of the Bible. That is a totally legitimate concern. And I want to tell you right now, and this might be controversial to others, you know, you got this side and that side. Um, the New Testament gift of prophecy is, um, is, does not have the authority of Scripture. Okay? There were Old Testament prophets, and they had, thus saith the Lord, they give you doctrine, tell you what to do, and it was God's very words. Okay? In the New Testament, that authority has been given to who? The apostles had that authority, right? They had the same authority as the Old Testament prophets. They could say, thus saith the Lord, here's what it is. They give you doctrine, tell you exactly what to do. That authority, the apostles, after they've died, there aren't apostles anymore. After they've died, their authority is in here, okay? And everything you need to do or believe is in this book, okay? Their authoritative teaching is in there. Um, so what do we do with the New Testament gift of prophecy? Um, the, Paul's clear that we ought to not despise it, but we ought to test it, okay? And I think that's one of the concerns people have about prophecy is that they got to believe any person with weird colored hair that shows up and knocks people over, they got to believe they're from the Lord. Paul says no. Paul says test it, and he gives a few tests. In 1 Corinthians 14, he, he has this. Um, you can test it in three ways. First, is the prophecy that the person's bringing or say, I have a word from the Lord, or I think the Lord wants me to tell you this. Number one test would be verse 3, 1 Corinthians 14. Is it encouraging? Okay, verse 3 says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So test number one is, is it encouraging? Okay, test number two, is it biblical? Verse 37 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says this. He's instructing on this New Testament gift of prophecy. And he knows some of them, probably these people are not going to go with him. And he says this. I love what he says. He says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing to you are the command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. You see the power in that? He's like, what Paul's giving is authoritative, 100% word of God. Doesn't need to be tested. It needs to be believed. And what he's saying is, is that 
New Testament gift of prophecy is below that. It's very important that if somebody gives you a word from the Lord, that it doesn't contradict Scripture. But not only does it not contradict Scripture, but it doesn't claim the kind of authority Scripture has. Okay? Because they could say, oh, it doesn't contradict Scripture. I got this new teaching, though. It doesn't contradict Scripture. Or they could say, I've got this command for you. The Lord's telling me that you should not move to Tennessee. What is that? That's a command. That's something Scripture does. New Testament prophecy shouldn't do any commanding. Okay? So it should not give any new doctrine or new commands. Because, guys, everything you're required to do or believe is in this book. Isn't that handy? It's not only handy, but it's super freeing. I don't know how many of you guys have been in church environments where people would use their spirituality as a way of controlling people. A pastor or any leader, all they can ever give you is what's in the Word. There's no authority. There's no spiritual authority beyond what's in this book. The only authority you get from a pastor is they'll show you a verse, you see it, you believe it, you obey it. Okay? So that's super important. Is it biblical? Secondly, is it clearly supernatural? Now, this one comes out a lot because in a lot of churches that try to do the gift of prophecy, a lot of the things that are given as prophecy, they aren't really supernatural. It's kind of like, oh, that was a good guess. Like, um, I feel like the Lord's telling me that someone in here is dealing with lust. It's like, okay, well, like, good guess. You know, like, that wasn't (laughs) prophecy. This is what prophecy sounds like. Verse 24, but if any, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he will be convicted by all. He'll be account, called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and he will fall on his face, and he will worship God, declaring that God is really among you. So there's going to be a clear, like, how did you know that kind of thing, right? Super important. I want to share with you a couple of examples of this, so you could just have an example. One of them is an old example, and it's Spurgeon. 1800s Baptist. Great person to pick, Right? So in his autobiography, he talks about how he would often kind of break off from a sermon, look in the direction of somebody, and call them out. You guys want that here? That would be super convenient. Everybody would be like, I need to take care of everything before I show up to church because, you know, I don't want Eric doing that. That's crazy, huh? One time he broke off from a sermon. He looks right in the direction of this young guy, and he says, those gloves you're wearing are not paid for. You've stolen them from your employer. He just looks over in that direction and says that right in the middle of a sermon. Guy comes up to him later, and this is a guy that wouldn't say it's prophecy. He didn't know what to call it. He just, this happens. Came to him, brought the gloves. Guy's super sheepish and pale, and he said, like, this is the first time I ever sold for my employer. Like, I want to make it good. Don't tell my mom, he says. (laughs) She would die if she knew I'd become a thief, right? And he said, and so this is just like 1 Corinthians 14. The secrets of his heart were disclosed. He knew something. Clearly supernatural, right? I mean, what are you going to say about that? Lucky guess? I don't think so. Um, Spurgeon said that he could cite dozens of times this happened. He said, I've known many instances in which the thoughts of men were revealed from the pulpit. I've sometimes seen persons nudge their neighbors with their elbows because they had gotten a smart hit. And they had been heard to say, the preacher told us just what we said before we walked in the door this morning. And and that happened again and again. There's uh, one guy here in the church today. I won't point him out, but he was actually, that's part of his story, is that came to Christ, there was some sin that he was dealing with, and there was a pastor who didn't know the guy, the guy called him out on his sin and the exact date it happened, and it's like, whoa, right? I mean, it's just like 1 Corinthians 14. Um, I have a story that involved me. Do you like these stories? Okay, one more story. So, and I have to be careful how to tell this to protect the guilty. So, um, so okay, one night several years ago, um, I'm a veterinarian, we have a vet group, and several years ago, th- we found out that we had been embezzled from big time. Like, the, the, our companies we buy our medications from um, called us, and they said, like, you owe us, it was over $100,000. 
and you got to pay right away. And we're like, we didn't know we owed you that. And it turned out that a person in our office had been embezzling from us for years, massive amount of money, which shows we're stupid too, by the way. But anyway, that's beside the point. So that night we found out exactly who it was and we found out the exact dollar amount. Okay. This is important for later. Okay. And, and it looked like we were all going to have to pull it out of our pockets somehow, which we did not have pockets that deep. And so it's terrifying. Did sleep well that night, a little disturbed having to make a major purchase for something I didn't even get, you know? The next morning, I'm in this Bible study, and there was a guy that was normally in the Bible study, and a guy that most of you actually know, and um, he didn't show up that morning. He overslept, which was not surprising. He overslept, and, um, and he left a voicemail on my phone. So he goes, hey, Eric, you call me right away. I had a dream about you. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And I hadn't told anybody about what happened except for my wife at that point about this disastrous financial situation. So I call him, and he said, I had this dream about you. And I'm like, okay. And he tells me this dream. Check this out. Okay. He knows nothing about it. He says he has this dream that he came over to our house, and there was a bunch of people from our Bible study, and I had this, and let's get a little graphic, but I had this, like, bleeding wound from my leg. This is in his dream. This is my dream. A bleeding wound from my leg. And, 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 and the, the people that were uh, from our Bible study were doing all these kind of things, like one was putting a tourniquet on and one bandaging it. It was like they were a crisis team or something. He said that the floor was tile and there was a drain and they were kind of cleaning up the blood. I'm like, wow, you have graphic dreams, you know? And, and then he said, and then suddenly in the dream, we were outside and money was falling from the sky and he saw two numbers. One was a four-digit number and one was a six-digit number. And when he told me what they were, it blew my mind. So the four-digit number was the birth date of the person that stole the money. And I know that because it was this individual's, our gate code was the birthday of this individual. See, I'm being very careful. Um, so that was her birthday. Her, uh, blew it. Okay. The other one was the six-digit number was the exact amount of money that we lost. Now, you could go like, lucky guess. You know, like, I don't know, like, play the lottery with that one, you know? So, like, I don't know, you math guys, you get a four-digit number and a six-digit number dead on. The morning after I find out about this, it was shocking. It was shocking. It was something that I had never experienced. I believed in it because the Bible teaches it, but I'd never seen it before. And, um, and shortly after, I was uh, working for a, a client of mine, another one, and um, I was telling the story because he's that, like, super charismatic friend we all need. You know, the one where you're like, I could be more charismatic, but not that much, you know? Like, he's that guy, right? And so I tell it to him, and he's like, oh, that's amazing. And I said, well, you know, a lot of good it did me because, you know, it's not like it saved me the money, and, you know, I'm, I'm impressed, but not, I don't see the benefit of it, right? What's the benefit of this? And he goes, oh, well, it wasn't for that. He's all, do you want to hear the interpretation of the dream? And I was like, sure, Daniel, go for it, you know? It's like Joseph or something. He's like, okay, let me tell you. And this is what he does. He gets all excited, and he does this. He goes, he goes notice the wound is on your leg. It's not a mortal wound. It's not your head. It's not your chest. It's your leg. You're going to live through this. You know, this is going to hurt you, but it won't kill you financially, right? And then he goes, and notice the tourniquet and the people helping. Like, the, the church is going to come around, comfort you in this time, encourage you in this. Um, once again, you're not going to die from it. Notice the tile floor and the drain. This will get cleaned up. You know, he's super excited about this, and I'm like, okay. And then he goes, notice the money falling from the sky and the exact amount you lost. This is a symbol that God will supply the money in a very surprising way. You know, and then he goes, the birth date. The birth date says that God is sovereign over this. He knew the day she was born that this would happen. He will take care of you. He's got this. And I was like, that is encouraging, you know, like that, that God would, you know, how good is God to do that? You know, to say, hey, I know about this. I knew about this before it happened. I've got you. It's in control. I'm going to supply your needs. And the weird thing is God did supply those needs 
because I won't go into the details, but the, in, in a surprising turn of events, we were actually able to come up with the money without great hardship. It's crazy. Notice in those examples, the Spurgeon one, the one I just gave you, that they, they don't compete with Scripture. There's no new command given. There's no new doctrine given, right? It's not contradicting Scripture, but it is massively encouraging. It, it is um, biblical in the sense that it doesn't compete with Scripture, and it is clearly supernatural. I mean... I know you guys that are cessationists will also say, like, okay, that was clearly the Lord. You might say, well, there's not a gift of New Testament prophecy, but definitely God did that. No, I'll take that. That's great. I mean, because we can't do anything else with it. I don't, even, I don't know what an unbeliever does with that. Like, that's like the most amazing, should have bought a lottery ticket that day or something like that, you know? Um, it's amazing. Clearly supernatural. Um, what do you do if someone gives you a word from the Lord and it ain't? You ever been in that awkward situation? Like, the Lord wants me to tell you something, and they're telling you all this stuff about your life that isn't you. Um, you just tell them, thank you, and you missed. Okay? <laughs> you just say, hey, thanks for that. I appreciate you wanting to encourage me, but, like, you got the wrong person. Keep looking. You know? That would be fine to do. That's what Paul did. Paul got a mixture of good and bad prophecy in Acts 21. He's on the way to Jerusalem. He's bringing the big offering to Jerusalem. And um, he had been hit up by a couple of prophetic people along the way that told him, like, this isn't going to go well for you, which was true. This isn't going to go well for you. One of them, though, said, this isn't going to go well for you. You're going to be captured. Don't go. And what did Paul do? Ignored it. Ignored it. He said, this doesn't fit with, you know, what I already know. And um, I, I hear your concern. I, uh, you're right about something bad's going to happen here in Jerusalem, but I'm ready to do it, Right. Um, what if you believe God's giving you a word for someone that spontaneously come to mind and you think you need to give it? Test it. Is it encouraging? I mean, I don't think we go around, I mean, the one with Paul wasn't like super encouraging, but um, I don't think we go around like harpingers of doom on people and stuff like that. I don't think that's our job. Is it encouraging? Is it biblical? It isn't commanding this person to do anything new, right? It's not giving any kind of new doctrine. And if it fits those, then humbly give it. You don't say, like, thus saith the Lord. You're not Joel, you know? You're not Isaiah. You say, hey, I feel like the Lord wanted me to tell you something. I don't know. Let me just tell you see, and see what happens. If it is from the Lord, they're going to be like, how did you know that? That's amazing, you know? And, and God will be glorified by that. But isn't God good? I mean, this is something that, that we really, you know, if you have something like that, it's worth telling. Like this friend of mine, what if he didn't tell me? Or what if he told me like weeks later or years later? It wouldn't have the same impact. I'm so glad he was faithful to just go out on a limb and tell me. And, and he did. And that guy, surprisingly, he's in law enforcement. He has multiple things like this happen to him. He clearly has some sort of gifting in that area. I mean, um, strange things like that. Um, so Pentecost shows us that we've all been given spiritual gifts. And your gift might not be flashy like that or you might not think it's flashy. Guys, but every spiritual gift is a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Because you hear that and you think, oh, that's a manifestation of the Spirit. But my hospitality, I just like doing that. It's like, no, that's a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good too. How many of you guys have been super blessed by non-flashy spiritual gifts? Mercy, teaching, hospitality, giving. I mean, how many of those have been like, I didn't need a prophecy, but I really did need your gift. I didn't need a prophecy, but man, it was so helpful to hear that merciful word from you. I didn't need prophecy, but I needed somewhere to stay, right? Those gifts are supernatural too. All God's gifts are supernatural. And if you go through the list, the lists are things, these are compiled lists from the New Testament. Faith is a spiritual gift. Some people have increased levels of faith beyond typical Christians. Um, teaching, healing, miracles, service, very important. Administration, I think that's a gift I love. I love, I love me some administration. 
right? Like, I would love for somebody, I have the gift of administration, let me take care of that. That's amazing, right? And, and when it's amazing, it's things like Joseph, when he had, would do administration. It was like something clearly God was doing. Um, in tongues and interpretation, tongues do have to be interpreted if they're going to be done publicly. Um, knowledge, wisdom, anybody like gift of wisdom? Gift of wisdom keeps us out of a lot of trouble, right? Um, giving, discernment, leadership, mercy. And, um, and I know that some of these gifts that are quote-unquote more flashy or whatever, um, my concern is because they've been greatly abused. And amen to that, they have been greatly abused. I mean, everything from healing to prophecy and all that. But you got to realize, just because a gift's abused, we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't stop using it, right? What, the most abused gift in the church has been leadership and teaching, actually. And we don't stop doing those, right? And so um, it's something we need to just test it and be open to it and pray for it. Paul says that we should desire the spiritual gifts, you know? And so what do you do if you don't know what your gift is? Um, pray. Pray the Father like this. Pray, give me some gift to bless your people and make you known, right? It, the spiritual gifts are not for our self-esteem. I think a lot of us feel like, well, if I knew my gift, I'd feel better about myself and feel like I was important here. It's like, that's not what it's about, buddy. Like, it, this is the Holy Spirit working through you to glorify Christ. So, um, so pray that God would give you a gift for the people that are right in front of you, not that you would have some platform somewhere else. And then start serving and serve wherever there's needs. I think a lot of people are like, well, my gift is this, so I can't do any of that. It's like, you'll never find your gift out that way, right? You'll never find your gift. Serve where there's needs, okay? Josh knows of a need. Uh, Val knows of a need in children's ministry. But um, serve where the needs are in, in the church. Serve where the needs are throughout the week with other church members. Serve where there's needs in your neighborhood. And then just see what the response is. You're going to see. God's working through you. You're going to know. People are going to say, like, wow, that was super encouraging. You know, there's been people that, I mean, Chad called me, I think it was out of the blue on Monday, and I was uh, on, on emergency duty, and I got a call at 9 o'clock at night, and I already worked all day, I'm not really into this, and it was in Warner Springs. Okay, like, I'm going to suck three hours of your life away, you know? And so I'm on my way driving, and all of a sudden he calls me, you know, out of the blue, he doesn't normally do that, I wouldn't pick up the phone normally. And when I'm at home, if he called me, I'm not going to pick up the phone for him at night. I'm not, Chad. But I, was, uh, but I was on the way out there, and it was perfect timing because I'm kind of wrestling a little bit, you know? I'm kind of like, you just took my whole evening, and I'm bitter, you know? And he talked to me and prayed for me. You'll see God work through you, and then practice it, right? Paul said to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. You can get better at it with time as you practice it and hone it. Okay, so uh, Pentecost shows us the time. Pentecost shows us the presence. Pentecost shows us the power. Last one, Pentecost shows us the king. In John 16, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he said, when he comes, he'll glorify me. The Holy Spirit has come to glorify Jesus, not himself and certainly not us, but he's come to delight in glorifying Jesus. And I love this example of what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is, you know, third person of the Trinity, very God. Um, God and what he does is he likes to glorify Jesus. And I love this example of like at night, um, you'll see a building and you'll see a floodlight that's down in the landscape and it's shining up on the building, right? Or like, I would like to get some for some of my plants that I like too much. You like my acatillo or something, put a little light, have it shining up on it. And you don't see the floodlight, right? You see the thing it's shining on. The Holy Spirit loves to do that. He loves to kind of get back like this and shoot light onto Jesus. That's what he does. He lives to glorify 
Jesus. He loves to glorify Jesus. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was showing Jesus big time. And we see that in Peter's preaching here, which I'm going to go over really briefly. He shows um, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king who, verse 22, has, says, has a life we can't ignore. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. I love how he adds that, right? He says that Jesus' life was a life attested to by God. You might be here and you might be like, you know, I'm not a Christian. I don't follow Jesus. But you've got to admit with me that Jesus had a life that was attested by God. You look at throughout all the humans in, in world history, and there's nobody that lines up even close to him. His life is clearly a life we can't ignore, attested by God, by mighty works and wonders and signs. He is a king who, verse 23 says, offered himself to be crucified for you. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by killing him by the hands of lawless men. He came and died on the cross because verse 20 says that the day of the Lord is coming, great and magnificent. God is coming. This king is coming back to judge this world, and that's not bad news because this world needs it. Okay, We look at the world. We look at what's going on in the world. What we need is the right king to come to judge and set things right, and that's what he's going to do. Now, the problem is, is that all of us have rebelled against him, right? All of us have rebelled against him, but the cool thing is, is that there is a shelter from the judgment of this king, and that shelter is in the king himself. If you will trust in him, call out to him, it says in verse 21, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that you can hide yourself in Christ. If you will trust in him and ask him to apply his blood to your sin, he will he will spare you from the judgment and welcome you into his kingdom. Pentecost shows us that, that this king was a king who death could not hold. Take a look at this. This is great. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Don't you love that? Death couldn't hold him. He's a king who, verse 33, says, right now is ascended and reigning. It says in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out this that you all are now seeing and hearing. Notice that, that Peter says this, this manifestation of the Spirit in God's people is proof that Jesus himself is on the throne. There's a connection between those two, right? In Ephesians 4, it says that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Really cool. It's Ephesians 4.8. And what it's saying is that Jesus won a great victory at the cross. He's resurrected. And then he goes up to his throne. He ascends. And the image is of a king coming home from battle with the spoils of war. And as he's walking in this, this parade of victory up to his throne, he's showering the people with the spoils of war, throwing things. And those things are the gifts of the Spirit. Isn't that cool? They're the gifts of the Spirit. And so what happened was he goes up seven days later. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Pentecost comes. And that's him on his throne, showering down the spoils of war. He's showering down spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts are things that we use to glorify him. He's also a king who, verse 36 says, we can know for certain as both Lord and Christ. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This king, the spirit has come so that we will love this king, that we will live for this king, and that we'll make this king known. You guys live in an awesome time. You know, is it a dark time? It's a dark time. You're in the last days. What did you expect? Right? It's a dark time. You live in an awesome time. 
You live in a time where you get to be the last day's promised temple. You get to be the portable presence of God in a dying world. And that's why we don't do pilgrimages. You know, other religions do pilgrimages like the Jews did. They would do Pentecost and Passover and booths and all that. They go to a holy place. They go to the temple. They go to a place where God is. You are where God is. There is no pilgrimage because you are the portable presence. You, the, the, the holy place goes wherever you go. In the new covenant, that's the way it is. You, the temple goes with you. So old covenant evangelism was come and see, come and see. And new covenant evangelism that we're in now is go and tell, go and tell. We're a missionary people, not a temple building people. We're a temple on the go. And Acts 2 is such a cool missionary staging area. Did you ever think of it that way? It's just people from all over the known world, right? They're all assembled there. You got people from like North Africa. You've got people from Asia Minor. You got people from the Arabian Peninsula. You got people from the Mediterranean and Rome and places like that. These are all potential missionaries to go out and go to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, right? We got them all lined up. What do we need? We just need to get them saved, right? We get them saved, the Holy Spirit in them, and send them out. And that's exactly what God did, right? He saves them and he sends them out. It's the beginning of the Great Commission. It's a missionary staging area. And that's what he'll do with you. Pentecost says that he has come to live within you, to work through you wherever you are. You're at home, you're at work, you're with the, with the neighbor next door. You are the portable presence of God. God will speak through you. Let's seek him, guys. I mean, if it's true what Jesus says, that it's better that he physically go away so that the Spirit would come to us, we got a lot to live into, don't we? You're like, no, I'm living into that. No, we're not living into that 10%, right? It's exciting, isn't it? We don't have to feel guilty about that. We should be excited about that. Let's live into it more. Um, let's pray. Father, we uh, pray that you would give us the joy that is due for what you've done, that you've saved us, that you've adopted us, that you have a kingdom coming for us, that you're going to make all things new in the world, that you've welcomed us into that future. And that you've done this really unusual thing and that you've come to live in us in a way you only used to live in the temple. Lord, we pray that we would be filled with joy at that reality and we'd be mobilized by it. That we'd be sent out, sent across the street. That we go out on a limb. That we get into conversation and just believe that you're going to be there. Lord, even as I was praying before I came this morning, I wouldn't do this if you weren't in me. You'd have to be crazy. That you're within all your people. Greater than the dream of Moses. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.